Good morning, guys. Um, this one is with Max Pigman, the founder of Lewis and Clark Brewery. Um, this one was super interesting. I uh, had lots of fun getting to know Max better. Um, talking about risk, talking about struggles in business. Just a overall really good conversation. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy and learn as much as I did on this one. So uh, I'm sit- <laughs> sitting here with uh, Max Pigman. Uh, Max, so who are you? I am uh, Max Pigman. I'm the owner of Lewis and Clark Brewing Company, the founder of Lewis and Clark Brewing Company. Uh, I purchased uh, an old brewery called the Sleeping Giant Brewing Company back in 2002, about 17 years ago, coming up in just about two weeks. And uh, congratulations! Yeah, thanks. And. Uh, yeah, it's been a great journey. Certainly uh, been some ups and downs, but uh, it, it's been a fun ride so nice. far. So how did you get into that? Well, it all goes back to a poker game, actually. Oh, yeah? I was playing poker uh, one night with some friends <clears throat> at another guy's house, and I had stopped at the Sleeping Giant Brewing Company to get a growler of beer before I went to the poker game because I was a home brewer. And uh, as most home brewers find, if you make decent beer, you're normally out because your friends like to come over and drink the beer and you drink plenty of it yourself as well. So I had a little bit of my own beer I took, but I knew I wouldn't have enough. So I went down to the Sleeping Giant Brewery underneath the, uh, uh, the brew house there, which is only a few blocks from where I live and picked up a growler of beer and then went to this poker game and uh, in the poker game, someone said, oh, I noticed you got, you know, of course, this is back when craft beer was still pretty young. Uh, you know, I'm one of the old guys in the business, having done it 17 years now. Most of the growth in the industry has been in the last three to five years. Yeah. So someone said, hey, I noticed you're into that, that craft beer, that sleeping giant beer. And I said, yeah, I, I enjoy good beer. I make my own beer. And he said, well, they're, they're uh, up for sale. Did you know that? And I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, they're actually going bankrupt and uh, so you should go talk to the bank and see if you could uh, maybe get a sweet deal on that place and I you know kind of went into my head a little bit and then uh, this was right before uh, 9-11 okay. and uh, I worked for a dot-com at that point and uh, had a bunch of stock and I thought I was going to be a rich person because that stock had went way up but I couldn't sell any of it because I was one of those employees that's on what's called a cliff. So you can't sell until a certain time comes up. Mm-hmm. And uh, then 9-11 comes out and uh, our stock went from about $138 a share down to about, 
I think, 24 cents a share. Oh, wow. So we evaporated about $6 billion worth of value in just a very short period of time. Wow. And so I started thinking, wow, I wonder if this company's even going to survive. Because the company was based out of uh, uh, Westlake Village, which is down in L.A., and I had okay. an office down in L.A., and, and I would fly out every Monday and fly back every Thursday for my job, which was a public speaker. I spoke at three cities a week and all over the country. So yeah, you spoke for like Keller Williams a few times. Yeah, right? Remax, Keller okay. Williams, the NAR. I did some CNBC interviews because once we went public, you know, became more of a uh, investor relations kind of mm-hmm. deal sometimes. Um, and then, uh, so we th- I thought the business was going to go broke and I started thinking, wow, I better find myself a job. And I didn't want to move to Southern California where the jobs like the one I had would be found. And I also had recently sold about two years prior to that a a real estate company. And I thought, you know, uh, I could either try to start up another real estate company or just try to find a job locally. And then I started thinking, well, maybe this brewery thing would be cool. So I went into the bank with a whole business plan all done up and and uh, this was back in the day where the banker kind of looked you in the eye and said well if you shake my hand and promise to pay me back you can have it and so that's what I did and walked into the brewery the first time and kind of went oh shit now what do I do (laughs) because everything was a lot bigger than the homebrew system yeah yeah so instead of uh moving little tiny valves you're moving big valves big pipes lots of fluid moving Mm -hmm. around and it was a little scary uh at first we had i had about two weeks to kind of learn from a guy that was on his way out and then i actually brought over one of the old original brewers from sleeping giant that now actually owns uber brewing over in uh billings mark hastings great brewer uh, probably one of the one of the best brewers in the state. He's won a lot of medals. Uh, won the Tumbleweed IPA, won a gold medal in 2001, and that was his his recipe back then. So I had him come over and kind of give us some uh, pointers on how to run the system. And uh, then I hired a buddy of mine to help me because I was still traveling. Uh, the company that I was with that I thought would go broke didn't end up going broke. So. I ended up getting more and more promotions within that company, uh, eventually became their chief ambassador and kind of their, their spokesperson. And uh, so 19 years I was with them and, uh, you know, eventually got to the point where after we expanded in 2011 to come over here, bought the old Columbia paint factory, remodeled it, uh, and then we started growing at about 25-30% a year, year over year, adding tanks every time you turn around. Uh, I'd say the key to the, one of the key points to our success then is, unlike a lot of small business owners, I didn't need to live off of the business. I had another job. So I was able to take all the money that was coming in from the business and reinvest it right back into the company, buying more equipment, buying more tanks, getting more employees, that sort of thing. So when you know, you're a home brewer. Like, how did you get into that? Like, were you just doing it for as a hobby? Yeah, I'd say the first time I started really looking into it, I was living in Japan. I lived in Japan for three years, and uh, there wasn't a lot of good beer in Japan. Even it was tough to even find any. Couldn't find any of the imports that I was used to drinking when I was in the states. 
and uh, you know you would find your your top three domestics but you didn't even find some of the offshoots like back in the day I used to drink like Red Dog which was a a beer that I think was uh, brewed in, in an offshoot company from Miller but it just had a little more flavor or Lowenbrow or Michelob you know something that just had a little bit I've always been attracted that even when I couldn't afford it I would rather have a six pack of something that was good than an 18 pack of something that was kind of shitty in my mind quality over quantity exactly so uh, I started looking into home brewing and starting to doing the research when I was in Japan and then as soon as I came back to the States and uh, then got out of the military I was in the Air Force for nine years awesome. reprogrammed flight computers on a couple of their fighter aircraft then I moved to Montana I was born and raised over in Hamilton in the Bitterroot Valley okay and thought well you know I got three kids now I'd rather raise them in uh, Montana than Las Vegas, which is where I was uh, stationed at. And so decided to come back and uh, thought, hey, this is the time. And so I started buying some equipment and brewing in my basement and just loving it. And, and it did was just have, a cool experience. Did you have any intentions on potentially starting no. a business, just doing it as a hobby? Not at all. It was totally hobby-based. and. Uh, you know, you, you go through that phase where every home brewer does where you try to convince your wife that the money that I'm spending is actually going to be a good investment because I'm going to have free beer. <laughs> and then you start looking at, you know, first I was at Mr. Beer plastic bucket kit and then, hey, I want to go all stainless. And then, oh man, now I want to get into kegs. And so you end up spending a lot more than if I would have just uh, bought beer. I'm sure of that. But uh, it was it was kind of the first taste of not only the experience of making beer, but the love of different styles and starting to experiment with more and more styles of beer. Do you have anything that you're uh, producing now that you started in your home? Uh, the Lewis and Clark Lager. Okay. Was, uh, and we only, now it's called the Gates of the Mountains Martson. Uh, but Martson, uh, you know, is a lager and Martson is, is primarily what you find in Oktoberfest beers uh, each year. Uh, and so I was making that in my basement. Uh, I made uh, a, a couple of pale ales that were similar to the prickly pear. Uh, they didn't have the prickly pear cactus uh, juice in them and neither did our prickly pear until I bought the brewery. The prickly pear pale ale was a recipe that I got from the old sleeping giant, but it looks quite a bit different than it, than it did then in that we now use prickly pear cactus juice and and uh, then when I got actually Sean Tobin, my head brewer now, uh, who you know got 25 years of experience between Deschutes and he brewed at Blackfoot for five, six years and then he's been brewing with me for a long time. He really dialed in the beers. I would honestly say that I didn't consider myself a brewer. I would consider myself more of a cook. I knew how to make beer, but I didn't have the uh, skill set or the science background to really taste a beer and say I could make this a little bit better by doing this and that's what Sean can do uh, my strength is really in marketing and sales and uh, and so that's what I started to focus on once I got Sean in the in the mode of really doing the beer because for years I would fly out Monday I'd come back Thursday and then I would brew Friday Saturday Sunday and then I would fly back out Monday and I would have uh, someone that was working for me that would help me keg and, uh, and then we would do a lot of bottling on the weekends. We used to bottle the beer at the old place before we moved over here. And what year did you move over here? 2011. 2011. So we operated over there for nine years 
Uh, it got really tight underneath the brew house. We'd move everything outside during the day, move it back in, you know, extra kegs and extra bottles and all the other stuff that you need to operate a brewery just because we didn't have the, the footprint, the square footage that we needed to really do what we wanted to do. Although the brew system itself is this brew system behind me here that's a 20 barrel system could actually produce a significant amount of beer, but there wasn't enough room to add the fermentation. And that really becomes the Achilles heel of most breweries is not that you need a bigger brew system, you just need more fermenters to put that beer into because it's gonna be sitting there for a couple of weeks going through the process. So our challenge was we had a great customer upstairs. Most people thought the brew house and the brewery were one and the same, uh, which is you can't have a brew pub in Montana. It's just against the law. So. Uh, we were two separate businesses. We actually sold the beer to a distributor who would take the beer across town and then bring it back and sell it to the uh, the bar called the Brew House Upstairs Bar and Restaurant. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Pretty crazy. So you were in the real estate business for a while. Like, How did you get into that? What was your reasoning? You know, when I got out of the military, uh, I had finished my college degree and my goal was always to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force and I was a private pilot, still still I'm a private pilot. I started flying when I was about 15 and uh, the military's, the Air Force's uh, pilot need is very cyclical so it goes up and down and when I finished my degree they had a lot of pilots, like 20 some pilots per seat so they just they couldn't offer me a pilot slot, but they offered me a missile silo slot as an officer up in oh, Great cool. Falls, a Minutemen project. And I said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll just get out. And my mother had gotten into real estate from the time I'd went in the realist or went into the military to the time I got out, and she was doing incredibly well back in in Hamilton. So I thought, you know what, I could probably do that. We have a lot of the same communication skills, and so I decided to get into real estate. And I was doing a little bit of everything in the first six months. You know, I had a cousin that had a construction company, so I was doing insulating and painting and whatever I needed to do to pay the bills until the real estate took off, and it did take off. Real estate's one of those things that, you know, if you're willing to work hard, uh, you can put a lot of hours in, but you can also get a great return. And building relationships becomes really important, and, and that certainly is bled over into this business as well. Uh, so I did the real estate for, uh, opened my own company in about probably a year and a half, two years after I moved here and then operated that for a while. One advantage I had was I had the technology training being in the military and, and just being interested in computers from the time I got out of high school that um, the real estate industry was still into books. You know, they were looking at an MLS book and and so I started teaching classes to the realtors in my office, which allowed me to recruit more realtors. And then I started teaching classes for the, uh, you know, Montana uh, uh, Real Estate Association so that they could get their CE hours that they need to get each year. Then I started teaching classes in other states and I found I enjoyed speaking in front of people. It was a kind of a cool change and a fun opportunity. And so I became an instructor in several states and it was at one of these uh, places that I was teaching that someone else from the National Association of Realtors had seen me teaching and said, hey, we're about to launch this whole new website called Realtor.com and we're going to put all the homes in America online for everybody to see. Would you like to be a part of that? And that's really where it started. Cool. Um, 
So in your business, you know, career, do you have any struggles that you've been through that you want to share? Oh, sure. I mean, anytime, um, you know, business, especially a small business starting out uh, is very risky. And if you, if you don't have a high tolerance for risk, you're probably better off. And there's a lot of people that certainly are happy in a nine to five or eight to four job, whether it be state or federal government or working for some other company because they don't really have to worry about payroll and insurance and all of the other things that are gonna break down. Um, so, you know, I've always been somewhat of a risk taker. I've always been a gambler. Matter of fact, I got a poker game tonight. Uh, so there's always, you know, I guess that balance of, of whether or not business is right for people. And there's certainly some people it's just not right for because it, it's stressful. I've always been one of those people that could not worry about things that I cannot control. And, you know, whereas some people will get really upset in traffic or really upset uh, waiting for something at the airport. I mean, I flew for 19 years and oh, I wow. mean, you know, got a couple million miles with Delta and I've seen everything you can think of from, you know, cancel flights, delayed flights, you know, emergency landings, all that stuff. And it always amazed me that I would see people get so upset and so stressed out and to the point where they're in tears and they're pounding on a desk saying, I need to get to this point. And that person running that computer has nothing to do with why that airplane can't take off right now. Right. Yeah. And so I think I've just always had that ability and I'm blessed with that ability to, to I, I certainly stress about it, but I don't focus on it because if it's something I can't control, I'd rather work on some things that I can control. That. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. If I if I can't control something, then I just try and let it go. You know, obviously there's something bigger than me controlling it. Yeah. And you know, I it's like being upset because the light hasn't turned green. Boy, right. it doesn't matter how many times you pound or swear or honk <laughs> your horn, it's not going to have an impact on the result that's about to occur. So yeah. why don't you take that time to listen to a podcast or listen to some music or yeah. whatever? You know. Yeah, one of my mentors, I didn't even know what podcasts were, and about seven years ago, he suggested I listen to podcasts, and it totally changed my mind, and now, because of his mentorship, I, uh, I started a podcast. He is a TV producer, he does a lot of, he produces a lot of shows in Africa, and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. Um, so do you have any mentors that you've had growing up, or... In oh wow! This business, you know, I'm sure that there's lots of people that I've I've met over the years that have had an impact on me. I wouldn't say that there's like one person that I that I uh, you know have really focused on that I wanted to be like. Uh, I would say uh, from a book standpoint, Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, which is an old book, is something that absolutely uh, you know changed. <laughs> kind of cool, you had that in your bag. Uh, kind of changed my thought process about what I was going to do with my life and how I intended on building it out. Um, and then I would say, uh, you know, there's definitely been some leaders that uh, within the company that I worked for that I found qualities that I absolutely did not want to ever be like and some that I really wanted to emulate. Um, I had a, uh, a CEO of our company at one time named Mike Long, uh, who I thought was a really 
a really cool guy. I mean, he started WebMD and he's a billionaire and he's taken me in his private jet a couple of times and just a really cool guy. And he didn't have that attitude that goes along with money sometimes. He was a really down to earth, genuine person that would actually listen to what you're saying instead of just kind of pretending to listen and then waiting for my next opportunity to talk. There's a lot of people like that that aren't really processing what you're saying. Um, and so there's certainly people that I've, I've gotten some good qualities from or that I wanted to emulate and people that I wanted to make sure I did not emulate. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say there's like one particular person that kind of, I was able to kind of go under their wing and, and learn uh, the rules of the business. Uh, my brother, my oldest brother, uh, who has more of an accounting background, I certainly have learned a lot from him the importance of Excel spreadsheets and things like that when you're evaluating businesses, but that's not my strength, nor is it really my passion. Numbers are just, you know, I would rather hire someone like an accountant to do my books and taxes and all that. Some people love that. They just absolutely get a kick out of saving money and taxes. I would much rather do something that, that I had a passion for and it's not that. I totally understand. I was going to school for business technology and I had to take accounting. And there's th some people in there who like love it. I'm just like, I don't understand this at yeah. all. Like, it's <laughs> a whole, you know, and the world takes lots of different people, which is really cool because, you know, there's, like I said, I, I don't have anything against anybody that does any job because if that's what makes you happy and you get fulfillment out of that, then that's awesome. If you get up every day and you're miserable about going to work, then hey, you might want to take a risk or two and try something different. I like that. Yes, absolutely right. Um, so, you live in Japan. You were traveling back and forth in California. Like, what do you do in your spare time? You know, nowadays uh, I don't have a lot of spare time. To be real candid with you, I probably work on an average. Uh, I would say from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m probably six days a week, uh, almost seven. Uh, but I'm one of those work hard, play hard kind of guys. So I'm about ready to go on vacation uh, day after tomorrow. I'll be gone 12, 13 days and, and I'm, I'm gonna have fun. I mean, I'm going to St. Thomas and San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I'm just getting my toes in the sand and gonna try to shut down the business for that period of time. But I still love what I'm doing. I do notice now, I mean, I'm 52. I don't want to work this hard when I'm 65, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So I probably got to. I could. I could go at this pace another five to eight years, and then I'm going to start hiring people to take over some of the load that I'm carrying. Uh, not that I'll step away from the business, uh, but I definitely will get more help mm -hmm. and uh, and not have to make so many day-to-day -day decisions. Uh, I think learning how to delegate is a huge, uh, huge thing. And also learning where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. And, and just when you delegate something and then you see that project completed and you look at it and say, wow, I might've done it a little bit differently, but it's done. And I didn't have to do anything. I just told someone how to do it. And you start realizing that, okay, that, that, that has a lot of value because I, I can now step back and be more of the vision behind what needs to get done instead of the guy swinging the hammer, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Do you share your in, do you, you share your vision with your employees? Do they know what's going I, on? I try to. It's probably something I should do more. Um, 
I, I've actually just been thinking about it over the last uh, few months, uh, but I try to do like, uh, I would say at least uh, semi-annual meetings to say, hey guys, this is where we're going, this is what I want to see happen in the next six months or a year. Uh, but sometimes you just get moving so fast that you become a little more reactive instead of proactive and you're putting out fires instead of planting seeds and mm -hmm. so it's hard to hard to do that but I I've been purposely telling myself to stop and talk to my employees more because I get so focused on what the task is at hand that I know some of my employees will say well I, uh, I have a question but I, I I know you're busy and so you don't want that no I, I always have time for you but let's just let's just put it on the calendar. Let's just take 15, 30 minutes, whatever, and, and let me hear what you have to say. If you got an idea or whatever. But they see people like yourself coming in and out of this office a lot and they realize that, yeah, he he's a busy guy. Uh, and so you gotta make sure that that doesn't come across as you don't care. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've, I've been, this year especially, uh, I've lost a key employee this year and that's a reminder of, ah, I wonder what, uh, and you know of course there's lots of reasons why people leave other opportunities and I'm always happy for people to do better in their own life if they can find something that is going to make them happier richer all that kind of stuff uh, but it certainly just kind of helped remind me I should have spent more time I should have talked to that person more and 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 maybe they would still be here maybe not maybe something else would have came up but it's caused me to kind of refocus on that always evaluate see what you can do better yep. next time um, so one thing I wanted in to talk to you about was the question, well, to your response to my question, um, the importance of business connecting with its local community to ensure sustainable growth. Like, why do you believe that? What's your reasons? Well, I think I've I've experienced it, and I, I kind of everybody kind of if you say that comment, people say, oh yeah, that's important. But I, I've truly experienced how connecting with the uh, different parts of your community can absolutely uh, uh, impact your business. So for example, we've had probably 600, maybe 650 bands through here now in the last, uh, I guess, eight years now. That's uh, awesome. Live music two, three nights a week. So some of those bands are repeats, but a lot of them are regional, national, local acts, a lot of local bands. And so I feel like we were partially responsible for the resurgence of live music in Helena because mm -hmm. I, I'm a fan of live music and I would go around trying to find live music in you know, the uh, early 90s and uh, you might find one or two places that would have it and now there's lots of places that have it. Well, that's a lot of it because now there's more musicians that have come out of the woodwork saying there's more opportunity to get in front of people and we started consistently doing that one of the first really to consistently do that two nights a week even when we were a tap room before we could stay open later just a brewery tap room so you connect with all those musicians so that's one whole segment of society and I would these these are artists they create things and then we opened a gallery when we opened this in 2011 where we feature local artists paintings and uh, we we are uh, partners with the Helena Art uh, Society Helena Art Center and they come in and replace all the paintings every 90 days they put a little card with a price and a phone number so we don't have to deal with any of the people that want to buy the paintings but if something is purchased within 24 hours they have a replacement put up there so back when we did this relationship uh, agreement 
I said, hey, we don't need to charge rent and we don't need any commission on any of the paintings that sell out of there. Because in my mind, I thought, well, if I'm an artist that has a painting hanging in the brewery gallery, I might bring a friend or two in just to have a beer and, oh yeah, here's one of my paintings, right? Yeah, People yeah. are proud of their work. They want to show off their work. And so that's a whole group of artists that we could now connect with that may have never come into a brewery before, you know, because mm -hmm. of... Maybe they don't drink or whatever, but now they're going to come in because, you know, we got a gallery. And then on the other side of this wall is the power room, which is a room that we rent out for special occasions and parties. And, and so we started doing every Wednesday night was comedy night. So a local comedy troupe uh, called Cow Tipping Comedy started yeah. to uh, say, yeah. hey, we'd like to do a... I said, hey, you can have that room for free and even bought some lights for them and bought some microphones. Oh, and cool. And so all of a sudden, 80, 90 people a week are coming in to watch comedy and laugh. And of course, they're drinking some beers while they're here, too. So that's good for me. But you're connecting with all these different types of uh, community organizations. And then the Ales for Charity, which is every Tuesday night. We've done that for over eight years now, where we give a dollar of every beer we sell from five to eight to that charity. And we're talking about, you know, usually somewhere between twenty and twenty-five thousand dollars a year of checks that I'm writing just for those beers. And when you think cool. about it from a charity standpoint, we could do a bake sale, we could have a car wash, or we could just invite our friends to come down to the brewery on Tuesday night mm -hmm. and we can make some money for our nonprofit. Let's do that, yeah. right? Yeah. So when they do that, you'll get some people that come in here that have never been in the brewery because they're from the Humane Society or Intermountain Children's Home or they're from, you know, Florence Crittenden or all these great nonprofits that we have here in Helena. They now sign up about six months in advance. That's the waiting list to get one of those nights. And they invite all of their people to come down and have a beer that night because they know they're getting a third of the money. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden now you've connected to the, this group of people. So all of those connections came to a head and really kind of came to a realization to me is when we needed a uh, city commission meeting for what's called a change of use permit when we were going to change this from a tap room into a beer and wine license and we had a new parking lot that we had installed over at the brewery annex we it was gonna it needed to be something that the city uh you know had to vote on and so I'm a little worried that if they don't vote that way, my whole business is now in a mode where I've got to shut down the retail because we're going to grow above that 10,000 barrel limit is before they change the law. So we would have had to start giving away our beer. We couldn't sell it anymore after 10,000 barrels unless we could get this beer and wine license. So we go before the city commission and it gets to be about, the, I think the meeting's at seven o'clock and I get up there at about quarter till and there's probably already 50 to 75 people in line waiting to testify for us. And by the time it time, came time to testify, they were out the door and down the hallway waiting to testify on our behalf. And there was musicians and comedians and artists oh, cool. and nonprofits. And it just about brought tears to my eyes to realize that, wow, I didn't even have to ask these people to come and say, hey, these guys are doing a good thing. Let's say yes to this because they're going to continue to do good things. That was the big realization moment for me that, wow, those, you know, that's that standard kind of pay it forward or karma or whatever you want to call it mentality of if I treat people good, 
they're going to return that favor someday, and they absolutely return that favor. I like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So one last question. Um, what's your message to the world? Message to the world? Well, that's a big question. Um, I guess I would say, uh, well, what is your listener base? My listener base? Uh, entrepreneurs, um, people who have gone through struggles, uh, people who want to be entrepreneurs, business owners. Okay. Well, I guess I would say, especially when it comes to the struggle part, is uh, believing that you can do something is a big portion of why it happens. And I'm not one of those guys that, uh, you know, would say just be positive and good things will happen because there's a lot of hard work that goes along with it. So I'm not one of those guys that say there's no weeds in my garden, there's no weeds in my garden, there's no weeds in my garden. Sometimes you got to go pull the weeds right or else your plants aren't going to grow and i think there's some people that focus too much on trying to be positive but forget about the hard work aspect i work my ass off and i have for a long time i had two jobs for 30 years of my life now my family life might have suffered a little bit but it gave me the extra money i needed to invest in business mm -hmm. and invest in other things that are now paying dividends for me without me swinging a hammer or pushing or shoveling or any of that kind of physical work, but I still work hard. And I guess my uh, big recommendation would be, yeah, if you've got a little bit of risk tolerance and you're ready to work hard, then owning your own business is a beautiful thing because it also gives you an opportunity as your business grows, just like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, years ago when I read it, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago maybe, that's been out for a long time, about you know starting to utilize your business as a way to carry a lot of the expense in your life. And there's a lot of things that you can legitimately do that are fun things, uh, but become a tax write-off for your business, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I mean, we did a, a trip to Minnesota last year, my wife, and we took, uh, a cooler full of beer and we gave samples all the way there and oh, back cool. and looked at stopped and talked to different distributors but we also went to a Minnesota Vikings game and we went up to the Grand Marais and we, we had just a great working vacation that was a totally legitimate tax write-off because we're now we're going to be moving into North Dakota and those seeds that I planted are going to start to uh, pay off so I would say uh, you know don't be afraid and don't give up and really that's there's certainly two or three times in the last even five years that I've, I've been tried really hard and and I've thought wow maybe I should just hang it up and do something else and and that nine-to-five job started looking really good when you're under a lot of stress and mm -hmm. you're wondering how you're gonna make payroll for your employees and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's getting closer and so that tells me that the hard work is gonna pay off Cool. I like it. It's pretty inspiring. Cool. Well, thank you for your time, Max. I, Absolutely. I appreciate it. My pleasure.